thank you for uh, your grace. We thank you for your sufficiency. Lord, I know on days like today when attendance is down uh, in class, sometimes we can lose maybe a little perspective or, or wonder what's going on. And, but Lord, we commend this time to you. We know that you will speak through the word. Lord, get me out of the way so that you can do that freely. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to bring our petitions directly to your throne, to ask you uh, to act in these and other circumstances, and uh, to praise you for the work that you've done and anticipate the work that you will do. Uh, Lord, we do that even this morning in class, and I just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was uh, way off on the number of printings I made. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think I printed 20. Um, so, you know, before we, before we begin, I, um, I guess I'll move over here a little bit. Before we begin, I want you to think about Jesus' earthly ministry and all the different things that happened during that uh, during the, summer, uh, during that earthly ministry, and and if you had to identify some high points of Jesus's ministry here on earth, what would they be? What this, it's okay, shout shout them out. It's okay, and and they, this is totally subjective. There are some things that impact us individually more than others, and that's that's okay. So, what are some things when you think of high points of Jesus's earthly ministry? What do you think? It's okay. Okay. No. What? Just yeah. If if there was a specific healing, but um, miracles, you know, are high points certainly. What were you saying? Anything? I say like when the centurion. Okay, the authority structure when he speaks about that and the implications of faith that comes through the trusting of the authority structure. Um, yeah. yeah. The, at the be, be, uh, while he was a child in the temple. Okay, when he was a young man and with the elders and even the perspectives yeah. that he had at that point as being all God but yet a young man. Yeah, especially, yeah. you know. Okay. Yeah, Gethsemane certainly. You know, prayer at Gethsemane was a critical, pinnacle type moment. Were there others? Yeah. Thomas, when yeah, after after Jesus is resurrected and his interaction with Thomas and tells him to stick his finger in his in in his hands and his side and yeah yeah good. Raising Lazarus from the dead, certainly that falls under the miracle category, but a very specific uh, raising miracle is, uh, you know, and weeping and seeing the, all of that and the, you know, the perspectives of, of even kind of delaying, if I can use that word, going and him, Lazarus dying, if, if he would have been here, Lord, type thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The the prayer, the time. I mean, his prayer for us, you know, is a big deal, right? The resurrection is kind of a big one. The resurrection, yeah, yeah. When he chose his disciples, or, or whom he chose, and the the interactions even with them. Yeah, this is good. This is good. And, and, no, right? No, no. You were going through the whole gospel, but what's awesome is you're not hitting on the one we're going to talk about yet today. So, the multiplying, uh, multiplying the provision, right? Um, I think robe. I think you're going to be like, oh, when I say this one. 
but the, the the Mount of Transfiguration was, yeah. was kind of a big deal, right? Right? It's kind of a big deal, right? I'm surprised you didn't either. But but what's interesting is that the events that we're going to look at today are tied to. We're not actually going to spend time uh, re- regarding the Mount of Transfiguration, but literally what's leading up to that moment. And uh, I would argue and we could have a nice healthy debate about this, I would argue that the events that we're going to review today are part of a week that was maybe second only to his Passion Week. The Passion Week being the triumphant entry, uh, triumphant entry into Jerusalem and then the week, uh, including the garden, including the, the paying for our sins, the, the death, burial, and resurrection. And the reason I say that is we're going to be talking about the confession of Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, which was a big moment. The following of that with uh, uh, the the statement that Jesus says upon that rock upon the rock will I build my church the arguably the birth of the church and the subsequent charge to his disciples to count the cost and then he goes up to the mount of transfiguration and all that happens in a 6 to 8 day period depending upon your frame of reference and when you start the days and and when you start the the events and that like uh, and whether you include certain things but i would make an i would make the argument that this is maybe a one of the most pinnacle times and all of the things that you all said were really important really important so so in study so here are our passages Matthew and I was I'm a little surprised since I I passed up the notes before that nobody nobody yeah, I, I teed you up I set you up right for it and nobody said it right uh, you were trying to be honest right but in Matthew 16 in, and so these are three parallel passages notice the reference a few weeks ago to the synoptic gospels right the Matthew Mark and Luke almost always well I should I, let me start my sentence over they are the most alike in the way they portray uh, the events in the gospels we see that again here John does not record this uh, this circumstance, this event. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and remember that coast of Caesarea Philippi for later, he asked his disciples. So it's not just an interaction. He like purposefully asked them, and we're looking at the lessons from Jesus' questions. I think it's kind of interesting. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then when you jump down to verse 15, and he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Right? So there's two questions. Who do others say that I am? But whom say ye that I am? And, uh, excuse me, I want to hit on Mark chapter 8 here. Same, you know, parallel passage. Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. So there were little kind of villages or areas in Caesarea Philippi. And then he asked his disciples, uh, as he's going through, whom do men say that I am, and but whom uh, say ye that I am? And Peter answered and saith that I am thou art the Christ. Again, it's a that's a pretty pretty pivotal moment in in Christ's earthly ministry. And then the, the same. Notice in Luke chapter nine and verse eighteen, it came to pass as he was alone praying, and his disciples were with him. So even in the midst of this kind of story, and in the midst of Caesarea Philippi, he's praying. And again, we'll see, I I believe we'll see Christ's heart uh, coming through here. 
you know the same uh, the same interaction. And so um, our first uh, you know kind of our summary here is circumstances influence the perspective of the event. And so we'll need to kind of look at the events that are happening around that time. We'll talk about spiritual discernment, how things are spiritually discerned, specifically how the people messed up who Christ was, but how the disciples knew right who he was, and then seeing him as as he is. So our series study point number 10. Now on the back of your page, for some reason there's a typo and I only got number 1 on the bottom. So that's actually, you have to write a 0 there. But a ser- series study point number 10. Circumstantial context, context assists in, under, in understanding what's going on. Now, it's really important. Contextual cr- uh, context is critical. Contextual contra- uh, context is arguably the most important thing when you approach uh, the studying of the word, right? So I say, I'm standing before you saying things. The, the context of how I say them is more important than the environment that I'm in, that I'm standing in Annex West teaching, but that context helps, right? That I'm saying it as I'm teaching as compared to us having a conversation, right? So the circumstances helps under help you understand, right? You know the context of what's going on in this room at this time. Right? If I was to walk out on the street and say these exact same words to someone walking down the street, different, same exact words, different circumstantial context, the words are going to land completely different. Right? I haven't earned the right to share the words that I'm saying with you today and the way I'm saying with them on the street. Now, I may say the same things, but not the exact same way. So when you study your Bible, textual context is most critical, but circumstantial context or the events surrounding it are important. Knowing who is saying it. Is this an Old Testament prophet? Is this Jesus? Is this the Apostle Paul? There's importance in studying Scripture, not just with the words. Notice in Psalm, so so to, to run with textual context, being crucial or critical, Psalm 14.1 and 53.1 say, there is no God. Right? This is the old classic example. There is no God. But both of those verses say, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Right? So God didn't say there is no God. The psalmist didn't say there is no God. They were saying the fool says there is no God. So the words are important. But notice in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9, the passage, or at least the chapters that include the passages we're looking at, literally, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. Okay. Now, one of the things we're going to see is that he is literally by at the 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 coast. The word coasts comes up there. We'll see some pictures in just a moment. But there's literally one of the the heads of the River Jordan flows. There's a spring there in Caesarea Philippi that feeds Jordan. So he's literally in this area, and I think that's kind of interesting. This place is about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's mostly populated by Gentiles at the time. 
the Jews, and, and, and even today, it's, it's, you know, even, there's hardly anybody that lives there, uh, even today. The Jews who followed him, followed Jesus, would have most certainly dropped off the way from the, during this 25 miles. Because he's ultimately going to Caesarea Philippi, which we will see the Jews despised this place. Okay? And you'll, you'll understand why in just a moment. He's finally, or probably, away from the masses that have thronged him. We saw that in the Luke passage where it says he was alone to pray, right? Those aren't empty words. He was probably, the masses were no longer following him. A 25-mile journey from the Sea of Galilee put all of their resources behind. To use a kind of military term, you know, their, their supply lines are stretched pretty th- thin at this point. They're away from home. They're not generally the focus that are following Jesus and are with Jesus at this point are all in. Okay? Uh, Finally, he's away from these masses and in a place that any self-respecting scribe or Pharisee wouldn't dare go. And again, you'll see that in just a second. Even today, today, in the year 2021, the Jews despise this place. Some of them still won't even go there. And we'll see more about that. So he's in by one of these springs, and he explains right after this passage his death, burial, and resurrection very clear to the, to the disciples, and they still don't get it. He explains right after this interaction the cost of discipleship. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross daily, right? This is like this is an important um, something. Okay, okay, no, it's all good. Something happened with the the screen back there, but I think we're okay. Um, That this is an important series of messages that Jesus is delivering. They're targeted to believers, to disciples. It has to do with the cost of discipleship. It has to do with his death, burial, and resurrection. It's alone and away from the masses that were thronging him. It's a serious moment. And this immediately precedes the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, we'll see why that's important in just a moment. And, and then once Peter confesses Christ, the glory of the Lord literally can shine. I honestly believe, I'm not dogmatic about this, but I believe the Mount of Transfiguration event, the Transfiguration itself, arguably couldn't happen until there was a, con- a confessing of Christ, of Christ by Peter. Arguably. So, the ongoing interaction with Peter, and I've alluded to this a little bit, the ongoing interaction when he says, Whom do men say that I am? Okay, who do you say that I am? Peter says, Thou art the Christ. He says, And you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Like, arguably, the birth of the church, it's actually the first mention of the word church in Scripture is in this passage. And Jesus is talking about building his church on Peter's testimony. Okay? Now it's and we'll get again, we'll get in I keep saying that. We'll get more into this because it's it's really important. It's not just Peter's testimony, but it's upon a testimony. Okay? I believe that that's how the church builds is and grows is through individuals professing Christ. So notice in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in verse 18, And I say unto thee, also unto thee, that thou art Peter, upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now it's interesting, the gates of hell, I don't know if you know this, but the gates of hell is an actual place. 
Did you know that? That there's a place in Israel, in Caesarea Philippi, that is known as the Gates of Hell. It's an actual place. Now, this is an artist's rendering of what they call the Gates of Hell. It's still known as the Gates of Hell today. If we didn't have the pandemic, we could hop on a plane, land in Israel, and drive to this very place and see the Gates of Hell. I've got friends who visited Israel, have taken pictures with their own cell phone or their own camera at the Gates of Hell, and you'll see it in other picture in just a moment. It's a it's an actual place. And the the reason it's the reason it's actually called that is the people that worship there called it that. And they were pagans. And they believed that this grotto, this kind of cave-like structure was literally the entrance and exit to hell. Okay? Well, you it, it is blocking it. Uh, I would say it's it's the the gate, if you will, right? So, so hear me out. I'm going to read a little bit. This is from a, a tour guide in Israel. Before the outbreak of COVID-19, I used to stand in the front of the grotto, which is the opening, of Pan at Banis. That's the look. Pan is the Greek god. Banis is the place that they call it now. At the foot of the towering Mount Hermon and welcome tourists to the lush Hermon Stream Nature Reserve on the Israeli-controlled Golan Heights. Welcome to the Gates of Hades or Gates of Hell. Indeed, welcome to Banis, the Arab pronunciation for Pan. Arab, Arabic has no P sound, so it moves over to a B sound. Banis is the name it was the name of this town and it was the city of the lusty half human half goat flute playing greco-roman god of shepherds and flocks mountainsides hunting and rustic music he's infamous for his unfettered sexuality pan is the pagan site matter of fact i would be careful if you Google the pan god, because the the pictorial refer, re, uh, representation of pan is um, grotesque. I, I don't know how to say it. Grotesque. It's very lusty. It's very sensual. It's very sexual. And it's interesting that this half goat, half man, who who is a who is a um, counterfeit to a good shepherd, right? Because he's he's the he's the god of shepherds and flocks and hunting and music. I mean, like Satan doesn't truly reveal or conceal who he is. He reveals who he is. He is being worshipped in this area. And this, uh, you can see that there's uh, like some sort of um, animals or something here, and there's there's this there's this platform here and a temple and and the way to get in and out and and I I don't know how to say it other than just to say it. Um, in the pagan mindset, the limestone cave at Caesarea Philippi was literally a gate to the underworld, where fertility gods spent the winter. Here, at the shrine facing a series of marble temples and niches for pagan idols, worshippers engaged in ritual prostitution and bestiality with goats in the belief that those sexual relations would entice the return of their god in the spring. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It's gross. It's just absolutely filthy. 
As for the Jews today, so this is, oops, this is what it looks like today. You can still see the markings in the cave, and there's inscriptions in there. You can, I guess you can't go in there, but I mean, I guess conceptually one could go in there. You can still see some of the temple that was built there. Even today, this is the only place in Israel where one may recite the blessing who uprights idolatry in our land when referencing the Lord. During the time of the Hebrew Bible, before Banus became associated with Pan, this northeastern corner of the kingdom of Israel was a center for Baal worship. In the nearby city of Dan, the Israelite king Jeroboam built the high place that angered God and eventually led to the Israelites worshiping false deities. And Jesus takes his disciples here to get away. Eventually, worship of Baal morphed into the worship of Greek fertility gods, Pan. And it's interesting. So that's the same thing. This is a spring that feeds the Jordan River. This is literally where one of the places where the Jordan River starts. Now, it also flows from snow, from the mountains, so it's not the only place. But So Jesus visits the coasts of, Phil, of Caesarea Philippi. He references upon Peter's Peter's saying that thou art the Christ. He's like, upon this rock will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, can you understand how now circumstances can provide some color to what Jesus is saying? I mean, it's amazing to me. It's striking. And I'm back reading again. Striking, Jesus chose to bring his disciples here to this place of pagan ritual impurity to deliver a sort of graduation speech. In this pagan setting, he encouraged them to build a church that would overcome the most debauched idolatry. Jesus' disciples must have been absolutely shocked of where they were going. Caesarea Philippi was infamous for this ritual sex, and Jews would have avoided any exposure to the debauched spectacles put on there. It was a city um, of people eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. Jesus just challenges followers to storm the gates of Hades. Upon this will I build my church. Wow. Wow. So, you can see this This is the grotto. This is the area where... This is the, the little waterway that starts. And I guess today, if you could get there, you could go have Lebanese and there's a restaurant right there. I'm sure it's good. These are buses. They pull right up. You can walk up to it. It's a tourist site. Setting aside any kind of pandemic... So it's in, in or at least near this place, near, near the gleaming pagan temples of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And it was Simon Peter who was inspired to answer, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now what's amazing to me, and I, I, I was telling some folks, I, this message might have been the one that that may have impacted me most as I as I went through this because I've never seen this before and and I've actually I've, I've tipped my hand a little bit here which you know I tend to do but 
This is Caesarea Philippi in the sacred cave and the, the spring kind of runs down here and I think this is the restaurant and the parking that we just talked about. This is Mount Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration. It's literally above the gates of hell. He takes his, at least a few of his disciples and walks them up and I'm not sure exactly what Nimrod's fortress, this is just a picture. Um, literally leaves this place and goes up on the top of the exact same hill, the exact same rock, and is transfigured before men to show his glory. Wow. Wow. So in reply, in reply, Jesus continues and says, Thou art Peter, and in my mind's eye, I'm not dogmatic about it, but in my mind's eye, He's like, but upon this rock I will build my church. See all the people taking part in ritualistic debauchery and sin and idolatry? When they turn and they proclaim me as Lord, that's how I'll build my church. I'm not going to build it with, you know, with pillars and columns and, and, and all sorts of beauty. It's going to be on a changed soul one after another where people are going to turn away from that God and they're going to turn to the one true living God. I, it just Honestly, it rocked my world to think. I mean, you can actually go up there and go skiing now. It's a, uh, Again, you can't because of a pandemic. But you can, I mean, you can Google Mount Hermon and you can, you'll see a ski resort. There's like, you could go skiing where Jesus was transfigured. I'm not, I don't know exactly where it was, but I just, that blows my mind. But it's just amazing to me that Jesus took his disciples away from the masses, right literally into the gates of hell, to have the proclamation of who he is and the resultant transfiguration. I'm not picking on any of your answers, but I would argue this is a pinnacle moment. It's at least one of many pinnacle moments in Jesus' earthly ministry. So all of that was just our, our series steady point. The circumstance, the circumstantial context helps address our understanding. So the first is, Jesus is different. He says, who do men say that I am? And what was their first response? Not that they're answering themselves, but they say, some say, anybody remember? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. Again, we didn't take time to read all of the passage, but if you if you look at it, um, you know they say, and, and maybe you know what? Maybe we should just go ahead and turn there. We we do have the time, I think, in Matthew sixteen. In verse uh, 15, 13, rather, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In verse 14, and they, the disciples, said, Some say, Thou art John the Baptist. So some are saying that he, Jesus, is John the Baptist, which is interesting because I don't know if you're like me, but there are certain people that you've never seen uh, in the same place at the same time, and you joke, like, I've never seen them together. Maybe they're them. Jesus and John the Baptist were at the same place at the same time, so it's impossible. But if he, if you, 
for a person to proclaim that Jesus was actually John the Baptist, they would have been ignoring Jesus as the true light. Notice in John chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Jesus' name wasn't John. There was a guy named John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, so he was pointing somebody else, that all men through men through him might believe. He, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And then if you jump down to verse 19, and this is the record of John. John said himself, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He actually pointed to Jesus. Like, this is not hard math. People that want to believe Jesus could have been John the Baptist are ignoring who Jesus is. They're ignoring the facts. And he answered, um, uh, I, am, or, uh, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Like, I'm John. I thought I was pretty clear about this. And they said to them, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Three Isaiah. So he, John, is very clear he is not Jesus. And yet he gives a, t- a testimony. His name is John. He is John the Baptist. He's pointing to, to the light. So to say that Jesus was John the Baptist was demeaning, and I don't mean any disrespect to John, it was just demeaning the facts. Jesus was clearly not John the Baptist. So the second, if you look back in Matthew uh, 16, and some say Elias or Elijah. So, if they were going to say that Jesus was actually Elijah returned, they misunderstood that Elijah was evidenced in John the Baptist. He just, he mentioned it. I'm the one one voice crying in the wilderness, right? As Isaiah said. And that Elijah will actually come back in the tribulation period. Now, we don't have time to go there, but Elijah, I believe, is one of the two witnesses that return. If you remember, Elijah, how did Elijah die? He didn't. He was taken up, right, in a in a um, chariot of fire, right. So I believe that he is one of the the witnesses that will come back during the tribulation period. And notice in Malachi chapter four, chapter five to six, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and de- dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So Malachi is pointing to the, to the tribulation period when Elijah is going to come back. Now here's the, here's the kicker of what happens with us as people. Whenever we go through tribulation, we think we're in the tribulation. <laughs> And honestly, I'm, I'm going to say it, this may sound harsh, but ain't that a little cocky? <laughs> I mean, the Jews thought they were going through the tribulation because Rome was tough on them. And I can't even, I, I can't imagine living in that time. I know some people are like, oh, I would have loved to. No, I'm, I'm pretty good with toilet paper. I'm not going to lie. I like it. You know, flushing a toilet, 
all goes away. Like not walking down the streets and seeing ritualistic prostitution and BC. I'm I'm pretty good with things today the way they are, and I don't mean like I embrace everything, but I think you're tracking with me. I would not. God did fine putting me alive when He put me alive and not back in, you know, tw- you know, 31, 32 A.D. People tend to think that any trouble they're going through is the is either the tribulation or the preparation for the tribulation, and everybody has done that. Everybody. You can see it traditionally all the way through history. Matter of fact, it's what some people use, some lost people use against Christianity. You always think you're in the midst of the tribulation. Okay? But notice... And Mark, now in the New Testament, and they ask him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come, or first come? So this actually happens after this passage that we're in for our study. Actually happens right after the Mount of Transfiguration, when they're coming back down the hill to meet up, in theory, with the rest of the disciples. It's not super clear, but it seems like it's just Peter, James, and John asking Jesus as they're hooking up with the other disciples. And then he says, um, And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it is, uh, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught. The, the tribulation has to come, not the tribulation, but tribulation has to come upon the Son of Man. Right? He must be said, uh, suffer many things and be said or not. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it's written of him. Elias has already been here. Elijah's, Elijah's already been on the land. There's nothing preventing the Son of Man from being being proclaimed at this point. Any any fulfillment, any prophecy. Or, I'm sorry, any prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist as the evidence of Elijah. So anybody that says Jesus is Elijah is also intellectually dishonest, or they don't they don't understand. Or the third, and look back in verse 14, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some say Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So Jeremiah, now we believe this is kind of an influence from the Apocrypha, the books between the Old Testament and the New Testament that we do not believe to be preserved, inspired, or I'm sorry, inspired or preserved scripture. There are stories in the Apocrypha that Jeremiah hid and would subsequently reveal the location of the Ark of the Covenant. Now that may be true, but we don't know it to be true. It's possible that Jeremiah hid it and that somehow through Jeremiah's prophecy the Ark of the Covenant will be located at some point in the future. Like it's it's possible. I can't take it off the table. But what Jesus is saying here when he's asking, if somebody says that he is Jeremiah, they also have it wrong. Now they've associated it with him Jeremiah being a humble, sorrowful prophet. Why? Because Jesus was not the Messiah type. Right? The Jews had a really hard, even some of the disciples had a really hard time getting <clears throat> excuse me, getting behind Jesus because they thought he was going to come with the sword and conquer Rome. 
when Jesus pulls out his sword, he conquers sin and death. Like, that's not what they were thinking. They were thinking, they are my oppressors, not sin is my oppression, right? So they didn't see him as the Messiah type. So everybody's misidentifying Jesus. So this leads us to a lesson number two. Your position on Jesus is all that really matters. People are going to be wrong. There was a book written years ago at this point, uh, Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. Jesus is one of the three. He's either who he says he is, the Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of God, and as a result, part of the Trinity. He's either Lord, he's a liar, he's just a a hooligan who, who said a lot of things that aren't accurate, or he's a lunatic, he thought he was, and he really isn't. But he's one of those three, or some version of those three. So you have a decision. Every person has a decision. And that position, your personal position, is all that really matters. Peter's response is really interesting. Because it's recorded slightly different. And again, this we have a choice. We can choose that the different Gospels are incorrect from one another. Or we can choose that they overlay. Matthew is recorded, records Peter as saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark says, Thou art the Christ, leaves off the Son of the living God. I would argue that's still the same. And Luke records the Christ of God. And I would argue those words are still up in the first sentence. And you say, well, that's manipulating scripture or words. I don't think it is. I think each of them, and we don't have time to rehash that ground. That's from a few weeks ago. You can under, go back and look at the, at the, the king versus the servant versus the, the man uh, illustrations. And you can even in this situation apply those. But notice what the word Christ means. Christ actually doesn't, it isn't the last name of Jesus. Some people actually think it is. It actually isn't tied to crucifixion. It's actually tied to, it's the word is anointed. That he's anointed. He is the anointed of God. The anointed. The son of the living God. The anointed one. So as a result, Peter's response really parallels our personal circumstance or our personal situation. Notice in Matthew 22, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, The son of David. It's interesting. With with his interaction at this point, they're like, Well, the son of David. Well, it is accurate, right? But that isn't enough. The heart of the matter is, what are you going to do with the person of Jesus? Who do you think he is? And according to Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, when faced with this decision, actually out of reading the book of Isaiah, understanding that he was pointing to somebody else, that it wasn't the same guy, he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Like, that was enough 
from that point on, he could get baptized. He, had, he was being saved at that very moment. In Romans chapter 10, the, during the Romans road, the, the story of, the, of how to take somebody from, from sinner to saint, from, to explain to someone their sin nature and how they need to acknowledge that sin nature and believe on Jesus Christ and confess their sins, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Like, this is a very, like, thou, thy, thine, thou. Like, it's a very personal decision. This cannot rest on your spouse. This cannot rest on your parents. This cannot rest on your church. This is a personal decision. What you do with Jesus is the most important thing, and that's all that really matters. When you're faced with the same question, whom do you say that I am? It brings us to our final lesson. Spiritual decisions have spiritual implications. Spiritual decisions have spiritual implications. Decisions mean something. They actually mean something. Spiritual truth is revealed. Here, you know, tweet this out. This is a major, major quote from Dobson. Look, be ready. Spiritual truth is revealed spiritually. (laughs) It's not revealed intellectually. It's not revealed emotionally. It's revealed spiritually. God will teach you. Look at back in Matthew chapter 16. Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus in verse 17 answers and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. This is not something that you could do of your own self, whether emotionally or spiritually. But my Father which is in heaven hath revealed it to you, right? Following the logic. But my Father in heaven, or Father which is in heaven, revealed it. So spiritual truth is revealed spiritually. The Father in heaven reveals it. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul puts it this way, But I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Right? It's not just a man's story. Somebody put it together. For I neither received it of man, even though I might have heard it from... I mean, Paul heard it miraculously. But I would argue, even though a person, it happened to be a female, that shared the gospel with me, I didn't actually receive it of female or of woman in this case. I didn't receive it of man. I received it from the Lord. Neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Christ. Christ will reveal himself to someone, and that's why we have to be very careful, and and I'm going to choose my words carefully here, we have to be careful when we talk about witnessing. It is incumbent upon us to do that. But we cannot convince someone of salvation. If you convince someone of salvation, you've just made a mental ascent. Now, you may do that and open them up for the Lord to speak to them, and that's an important part of it, or can be an important part of it. But I cannot... Like, if I could convince somebody to get saved, oh, that's not a... That's, like, dicey, because now I can convince someone not to get saved, or someone else can convince them to to be unsaved, right? Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolish unto him. Neither can he know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. That's why it's like when somebody is ready to be saved, it's like a, a light comes on. 
And God has prepared their hearts, has prepared the ground of their heart, and the seed that we often have to proclaim has to land and germinate. Like, it's a spiritual event, not a logical event. And heaven forbid, it's also not an emotional event. It can involve emotions. It often does, like incredible joy, incredible relief, incredible, incredible happiness. But those come after the spiritual event, right? In John 8, 43, Why do you not understand my speech? Jesus says, Even because you cannot hear my word. What, what, you can't hear because it's spiritually discerned. So this leads us to our final kind of sub-point. If you believe and confess, I would argue you'll see His glory. The Mount of Transfiguration follows, right? I, I mentioned that. They go right up for that. Look, we, in our passage, we're in verse 17 now. Or in, in verse 18, But I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell, these right here, shall not prevail against it. Uh, give thee the king, gates of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he goes up, uh, and, and Peter rebukes him, right, about d- d- dying, and get behind me, Satan, and verse 24, uh, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, what, verse 26, for what a man profit, uh, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Really amazing interaction. Look at chapter 17 verse 1. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and departeth them up to a high mountain apart. And, tr- and was transfigured before them. So, literally, this is right on the heels of Peter's proclamation and subsequent um, other challenges. But I would, I would make the argument that if you confess Christ, you will see His glory. Now, we don't get the opportunity to mount up, mount up a, or walk up a mountain where they now ski and see Him transfigured. Oh, but believer, we will see Him in His glory. We will. So confess, and there's going to be some struggles. There's going to be following him and not not selling out for the world's, uh, you know, profiting from the world's things. And and you might even mess up and and say, Lord, you know, I'm not going to let you die and and mess up in your spiritual walk. But someday there will be a moment where you will see His glory. Even in Matthew 16:28. Verily I say unto you, there shall some, or there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Like, there are some potentially here that will not taste death if the rapture comes in our lifetime. Right? But in John chapter 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest uh, me before the foundation of the world. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now uh, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We'll see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am, uh, even also as I am known. I mean, Paul realizes someday he's going to see him in his glory. In 1 John, when John writes um, his, his first epistle, Beloved, we are now we are the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is in his glory. His glory was shown on the top of the highest mountain, literally the highest mountain in the nation of Israel. 
and literally on top of the gates of hell. What an amazing circle of events when Satan takes him in Matthew chapter 4 and puts him up on a temple and says, you know, shows him all the kings of the world, right? This can be yours for a small price. And Jesus' response is to go right on top of Satan's temple and be transformed in glory. Wow! He was sending a very clear message to Satan. You may think you've got these folks, but I'm fixing to redeem them. He was still very much in control. So, who do you say he is? You know? Who do you say he is? And obviously with, with this group in here today, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with the fact that we don't have a ton of visitors. We don't have a lot of folks that you know, are coming from different places. It's kind of the, the, the home, home crowd, so to speak. But do not miss, do not miss it. Jesus asks each one of us in and through Scripture, whom do you say that I am? And you have a choice. You can, you can say, well, he's, a, he's like one of the prophets. He's a, he was a really good teacher. And, and I, should, I should follow what he says. Well, it's fine if you're talking about an, another message where it's like, you know, I should be a good steward. You know, I can, I can take care of stuff. I can try to earn as much money as possible so that I can, I can have a nice life. And Okay, well, now you've just spiritualized your desire to have the things in the world that you want to have. Jesus talked a lot about things that can be spun into 21st century Christianity. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I get frustrated with a Christianity that's content to be happy. Jesus is calling us. And there's going to be trial. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be angst. There's going to be failure. But boy, you'll get a chance to see him in his glory. Isn't that what we want? Be like him? I'd ask that we bow and, and uh, we'll close in a word of prayer. But before we do, as, as, you, as you pray, I, I just encourage you if, you, if you've never made the decision that Jesus Christ is actually the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the Savior of the world, and that he can pay for your sins... I implore you. I know there's people listening to this on you know recording. Um, if there if there is anyone that has ever not made that decision, I beg you, I beg you, seek the Lord on this. Ask Him to reveal Himself. And if He did through this message, then I would say you're at an inflection point. You're at a decision point where you now have to decide. Is Jesus really who he says he is? And if he is, if he really is who he says he is, then you have an opportunity to have your sins covered and paid for. It's a, it's a simple concept, and I know for some people it's a very hard concept because they're worried about the implications. Don't worry about the implications. Don't worry about, but I've said I've been saved since I was four years old or what. It doesn't matter. I would rather have you make sure that you're right with your relationship with the Lord right now than any of the potential angst that would come with that. 
So I'm going to close in prayer. And when I do, I, I, I just want you to I want you to seriously uh, consider this. And 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 I'm going to pray a prayer of salvation. And for those of you who are saved, I want you praying for anyone that's listening to this, anybody that's that's hearing this later, um, for them to for the Holy Spirit to be at work. And if you're praying this prayer of salvation with me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you just to, to hear it, to repeat it, and, but ultimately to believe it. Like, don't do it if you're just doing it to repeat my words. Do it because Jesus has declared himself to you as the Son of God. And if he's done that and you're praying this genuinely, when we're done, I want you to communicate with me, whether it's via email, if it's somebody that's listening to this days, weeks, years later, if it's uh, somebody that's uh, you know on our Zoom or somebody that's in the classroom, whatever it is, I need you to communicate to me so we can make sure um, that, that we understand what the next steps are for you. Lord, we do thank you for the fact that you were willing to come to the earth, that you as a perfect and holy God were willing to walk right into the face of debauchery. You were willing to expose just um, pure eyes and, and to, to potentially just idolatrous, horrible scenery so that you could proclaim that your church would build, would be built on the confession of who you are. And that as a result, we could understand and we could have a Savior and their sins could be forgiven. So Lord, I just pray on behalf of those listening, Lord, on behalf of those that are praying right now, that you would forgive us of our sins. We do confess that we are sinners, that we do need a Savior, and that as a result, we want you to save us from our sins. We need you uh, to, to interpose or to substitute your righteousness for our sins. That you would, would be willing and were willing to take our sin and nail them to the cross. And then have victory over them through the death, the burial, but more importantly the resurrection. Lord, we confess that not only do we understand our sin nature, that we confess that you're, you are Jesus, the Son of the living God, and that we want to be saved. Lord, that we acknowledge that, that if we just confess this and we believe it in our heart, that according to Scripture we can be saved. And we can know. And, and Lord, that, that each one of us who've done that in the past, or maybe are doing that even right now, would be convicted to communicate that to someone, to to explain that that I do believe that Jesus is the Christ and that my sins are forgiven and that as a result of my sins being forgiven I can live uh, I can live righteously before you for all eternity. And Lord, I, I know I'll sin, I know I will continue to sin. Not I don't ask for a permission slip for it, I just will. And Lord, that as a result of that, that you will receive honor and glory for being my Savior. I look forward to, Lord, being with you for the rest of eternity. And, and Lord, that I just thank you for everyone that was here today. I thank you for those who were listening. And I just pray, Lord, that above all, that we would see you for who you really are. And that you built your church on the confession of the sinner. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.